You want the answer to the quiz? Yes. What is the answer to the quiz? What Oreo is and was in your mouth? <laughs> uh, white fudge covered Oreo. Mm. They're pretty damn decadent. They're very decadent. Kind of like this band. I have a similar feeling. I'm like too <laughs> deep and I'm like, this is rich. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. ABC has a decadent vibe about them, I would say. You know how we said that Jeremy is very highly conceptual? It goes right down to his choice of Oreos per session. <laughs> Are there enough varieties of Oreo at this juncture? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I figured. So that, that could be a reality. These are the hidden contributions that Jeremy really brings to the co- to the podcast. People don't <laughs> understand the level of dedication that this man has to the art form. Yeah. If I have to, I'll start custom modding Oreos. <laughs> if the vibe's not 100% right. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, author of the new book, The Glossary of Gluttony, 1001 Foods to Eat Before You Inevitably Die. I would actually buy and read that book. (laughs) Well, it's coming soon. Oh, man. Pumped. Well... I'm co-host Jeremy, and I don't see what you guys think is so funny about the alphabet. We think the alphabet is funny? Yeah, you brought this record ABC lol. (laughs) Whoa. I see what you did there. You had to work hard for that joke, didn't you? Yeah. (laughs) I have insight into the fact that he came up with that joke in the last 10 minutes. Yes. <laughs> 10 minutes seems like far too long to have worked on that joke, in my opinion. Fair. I am co-host Peter Cook, and after this episode, I'm excited that I will no longer confuse the band ABC and their album The Lexicon of Love with the band's Book of Love or House of Love. And why is that? Because I know this album very well now. Oh, you're just telling us a fact. <laughs> yeah, there's not. There's actually, no joke coming. There's really no joke here. I'm just. <laughs> I now know what ABC the Lexicon of Love is. Uh, congrats, I guess. <laughs> LOL. <laughs> and if you stick around for the next forty-five minutes or so, you too could also know what the Lexicon of Love is. And with us. To learn about the lexicon of love, we have our returning guest, Liara Haas. Hello, everybody. You know, I feel like I'm a phoenix coming back from the ashes because I know what's good and I know what trash is. So, Ooh. yeah. Yeah, I went there. So, yeah. the phoenix that I am, I'm, I'm really grateful to return again here to uh, I buy that and, and bring you something that I think is pretty good. You guys want well, it- you want to let them know what it's going to be? or 
I, I think we've already spilled the beans on that one. <laughs> just ever so slightly. <laughs> just a L- few beans. LOL. Um, yeah, no, so we're, we're here to, uh, to talk about the debut album from ABC, Lexicon of Love. So serious, so sensual, so schmaltzy, just how I like it. <laughs> it is all those things and maybe a little bit more. Yeah, we can, we can get right into it. This is from June of 1982. It was released on Mercury Records here in the States, uh, Neutron Records in the UK, which it's worth mentioning, Lyra. I think the last couple times that you've dialed in to us, you were in the UK. At the moment, you're in back in Boston, right? I am in Boston at the moment, yes. I'm really, you know, aside from my my daily work uh, on the side, my, my passion project is to really keep people guessing about where I am in the world. So currently in Boston, but heading heading back to the other home for the holidays in a couple weeks. So I think by the time this episode airs, I will be over there. You, yep, it'll be just after Christmas. So yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, yeah, where did we want to start with ABC? Right at the beginning of the alphabet? I mean, take it to the top, right? So what, why don't we talk a little bit about, um, you know, about the record itself? You know, Lexicon of Love, it was the debut record. You mentioned that it was released in June of 1982 on Neutron. And this is another one of those cases where the debut just kind of knocked it out of the park. And, and I say that this is another one of those cases because I remember when you invited me on the show to talk about the Cheryl Lynn record, that was her debut record. And that was, you know, that was what set her aflame and set her to the top with her career. But uh, with ABC, uh, somewhat of a similar situation, not precisely, but they had been kind of, you know, poking around for a few years. And I think when we um, talk a a little bit more about the band and, and where they were coming from, we can get into that. But really, this was their debut record, and it, upon release, shot to number one in the UK, and it yielded four, four top 20 singles or something ridiculous like that. And um, I think th- this may or may not be a first on the pod as well, but we're going to cover all four of those singles, too. Well, what's the first one of those singles we want to listen to? We're going to talk about The Look of Love. Yes. Let's listen to The Look of Love. Side B, track one. Something deep 
in doing some research for this episode, reading about this album, this song specifically was written by Martin Fry, the lead vocalist, after a breakup of his. And apparently in the second verse when he says, when your girl has left you out on the pavement, the goodbye that's spoken by a woman that you hear, that was spoken by the actual woman who had broken his heart. Uh, <laughs> that feels unsurprising after listening to this album. These With- these guys are a little extra. They're, <laughs> they did, seem very dramatic. Did she get any royalties for that? What was her cut? It's a good question. These are things we should have. I should have dug deeper to find out. Yeah. yeah so I, I, I was. How, how did you get her to do it? <laughs> Otherwise. <laughs> I'm very curious to hear what you guys think of this. I mean, as for myself, so first of all, right, Melomaniac, as we all are on this podcast, I just love this record. And to this day, I don't understand why this is a dollar. You might all feel differently, but to me, there's so much going on here, especially this song, which was um, probably, if I had to gauge, this is probably the most recognizable song that came from from this album, and um, I remember when this came out in 1982. And when I heard this, I was like six years old. It came out in June. I think it was, the whole record came out in June. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I just have this memory of hearing this song in a car when I was driving along with my sister. And so it's one of those songs that's been in my musical uh, you know, vocabulary all these years. It, it just kind of always existed for me. And there's something about this song, I don't know what the formula is, but you know, when you hear, and and we'll probably talk about what genre this band is, right? Like pop versus other genres. But to generalize, like there's the formula that you hear about with pop songs where they say that, um, you know, it carries you into perpetuity. You know, it's endless. It's a loop. You never know what happens at the end. And it just kind of drives on your emotion and your sensibilities and i get that with this song so much like i never ever tire of this song it has everything the lyrics are spot on it's like eat your heart out oscar wilde and morrissey and (laughs) and like even when i hear this song in the lyrics i think of like ever you know the blue meanie from yellow submarine where every single line is like a quip and or a diss it's it's just got everything. And then the orchestration and, and how it all works together and the blending of these different genres. And it's just always stuck with me. And I remember being a kid and hearing it and thinking that this was this was sophistication um, between, you know, the image of seeing this video on MTV and putting the two and two together of the sound and the image. I was like, yeah, this is what it's going to be when I grow up. <laughs> all the drama all the drama and it's interesting too because a lot of these songs are kind of just like dressed up funk songs like that that track kind of just sounds like kashif with a bow tie you know it wouldn't <laughs> it wouldn't be another episode if i'd buy that without kashif coming up now would it you had to go there didn't you i did we're trying to bring him back more often he was absent for too long that song was the only song I recognized from this album. I'm guessing it's just like one of those songs that's in the air that you just hear at some point. Cause I had never heard of this band, honestly, before. And 
my personal experience that I would liken it to is like a, a very rich dessert. I I came out of the gate really liking this album as I first heard it. And then after like a few songs, I was like, okay, this is kind of a lot. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I can take all this drama in like one sitting. So... <laughs> LOL uh, is LOL is OTT. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's where I stand with it. Uh, I think in small bites, I like it a lot. It's interesting because Martin Fry, the principal vocalist songwriter who we mentioned earlier, he insists this is not a concept album, but it has all the markings of being one it seems like a break it's not a concept album it's just a concept band that could be it yeah (laughs) i can't roll my eyes any harder every time i you know read an interview with martin fry or you know read some kind of review about the record how is it not a concept album it every single song it's you know love and longing and loss and the thrill of the chase and the catch and the sorrow of the loss and then you know feeling salty about it as well it's just everything and i find the band and its sound to be so interesting because it really is just a cacophony and a blend of all these different genres and then coupled with the production work on the record, it's it's really, it, it is OTT. It is completely over the top. And it's one of the things that I love about this record. And one of the things that I love about the band in particular um, with the sound for this specific record as well. And you all know, I was, you know, had I guessed it on the Monkees. So I find this really interesting parallel where, you know, the Monkees, they're like my favorite band in the world, even though I recognize that they had blended all of these other influences and almost made, you know, a caricature of all these influences and and took those and and put out put forth into the world what they did and with ABC and this body of work um, lexicon of love as a whole I'm really intrigued by how they did that as well the album blends elements of some of my favorite genres like post punk glam new wave pop dance synth and when you look into the band itself and you read again like different articles or you're you're checking out different descriptions of them i don't really think anybody knows exactly how to peg them there's not just one specific word and i think a lot of people just use the word pop as a catch-all and i think that might be a product of of where they were coming from and the timing specifically of when this was released as well yeah, what came to mind for me when listening to this was uh, previously last season we had DJ Lola Kinks on and we did Level 42 Running in the Family. And I actually wasn't really that familiar with the, the term she used, but I've seen it a whole bunch since then, Sophistapop. For some reason that one had kind of escaped me until, or at least I'd never really taken note of it. Yeah, one of those things, once you know what it is, you start seeing it everywhere. Yep, like when you buy a a new car and you start seeing that model everywhere. Sure, that's the example I would have gone to right away. (laughs) Or if you get into numerology. 
Exactly. I, I completely agree. Yes, yeah, Sophistapop definitely springs to mind. That's one as well. And I think that term came up in our conversation. We were talking about Melba Moore and we were kind of talking about Sophistafunk. And I think Kashif came up then as well. <laughs> <laughs> because of course. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, definitely, um, you know, you can you can group this into Sophistapop as well. I, I suppose you could also use like the art rock tag because it definitely feels like music made by and for theater kids in a way. That felt derogatory the way you said that. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess. It, okay. I didn't mean it to come off like that, but it has this like we've talked about. There's like a lot of drama involved. It has like this theatrical, almost conceptual style to it. And I feel like there was other bands around this time, like Split Ends and other groups that or even like, you know, 10cc, Godly and Cream. Like, it feels like very theatrical. Like, it's very extra in a lot of ways, sometimes goofy and quirky. Believe it or not, there's a Godly and Cream connection to this record. Interesting. And I'd be happy to tell you about that. But you make an interesting point. I mean, if we want to talk a little bit about the history of the band and where they're coming from, you know, like the scene that they were actually emerging from. So I think that you know, talking about ABC and, and dare, I, dare I dare your comment of music for theater kids, but, you know, the, the, just such the dramatic over-the-top elements of it. So ABC actually emerged from a really great scene in Sheffield. And one of your uh, recent episodes over the past few months, which focused on the um, the the Mupop compilation. I was really, really excited uh, to listen to that episode and hear that because there are very strong connections between a couple of the bands that you covered on that episode and ABC, which to people who aren't, you know, necessarily familiar with ABC might find a hard line to draw there, but there is a very solid connection. So as it related to the scene in Sheffield, um, you were talking about the band 2.3 and Human League in that episode. And so ABC came from that very same scene at the very same time. Um, There's an interesting documentary out there called Made in Sheffield, which covers this between 1975, like the years of 1975 and 1983. And ABC, the etymology of ABC actually began during that scene. And they were originally called Vice Versa. And um, the saxophonist for ABC, his name is Stephen Singleton. Stephen Singleton was in this band, Vice Versa, and that band morphed into ABC uh, like around maybe 1980 or so. But this whole scene in Sheffield was really wild because you had a lot of these bands um, like 2.3, and Artery and um, Human League before Human League became the, you know, MTV Human League, Don't You Want Me, where where their sound changed. Cabaret Voltaire is another band that that came from this scene, which is pretty wild. Did I say Heaven 17 already? They did. And then here's one that'll throw you for a loop. But Def Leppard came from Sheffield around that time (laughs) as well. (laughs) And so a lot of the artists, you know, they were they were coming from this scene made in Sheffield. It really focuses on, um, you know, a lot of the synth pop and, and the post-punk sounds that were coming out at that time. And, um, you know, a lot of the subject matter combined with some of the colder, darker synths, you know, was rather tenebrous. And then ABC comes along. And I read in an interview somewhere that Martin Fry describes 
the lyricism and the production to what seemed like, you know, seemingly like pop music production as almost an act of rebellion against the sounds that were coming out of Sheffield at that time. So it's a really interesting juxtaposition. And I definitely recommend that documentary, Made in Sheffield, if, if you have an opportunity to watch it. I think it's on YouTube. Is there, can you describe in like quick terms, Sheffield, England? Because I'm not terribly familiar with the city. Like, is there something about the city that would create this music? I believe Sheffield. I have not visited Sheffield, but I think it may be coal industry or was at the time coal industry adjacent or very industrial adjacent. So, you know, certainly the environment surrounding the people who were living there at the time, especially the youth, that was, um, you know, that was influential on them. And it was also a like many other scenes across the UK or, you know, even in the States where, or wherever you're based, where it was, there wasn't really anything going on. There wasn't really a scene initially, which is why a lot of people started, you know, kind of creating and making their own scene. And so Sheffield was a little, little microcosm and this area where, you know, I think in the, in the, in the documentary made in Sheffield, they talk about how somebody got their hands on like a, do-it-yourself synth kit. You know, they got their hands on on one of those and they put that together. And then the sound just kind of kept happening. And so the scene grew because people were, you know, starting to see these other bands perform out live. And they're like, you know how it gets in those scenes. Everybody's kind of judgy and they look at each other and they're like, if you can do that, I can do it better. So it kind of became a product of one of those, like, oh, I see what you're doing. I can do it better. And so you know, these kids just started doing it. And what happened was Sheffield started getting some attention from people down in London, because at that time, you know, supposedly London is where the scene was, where musicians went to get signed and get notoriety. But a lot of the record labels, you know, they started to take notice of these bands in Sheffield. And one thing to note, which I do find interesting, is, is I mentioned the band Vice Versa and Stephen Singleton, you know, they actually created their own record label, Neutron. So the label that ABC's Lexicon of Love was first released on was actually their own label, technically. And that was just, again, another product of the scene. Yeah, obviously, they had probably seen what uh, Fast Product had been doing up in Edinburgh. And <laughs> it's worth, we didn't really focus so much on the Sheffield connection on that episode, so I'm glad that you're bringing that up now. Yeah, and Sheffield, it just seems to keep, um, it just seems to keep, you know, going and it, it, it perpetuated um, one of the, well, time flies now, doesn't it? But one of the more modern bands um, that I'm aware of, and dare I use the, the dreaded B word for Britpop, but Jarvis Cocker and his band Pulp, they were a product of Sheffield in later years. And he was actually interviewed in the Made in Sheffield documentary. And through Jarvis and, and, and Pulp's work, you know, there's a little term called Sheffield Sex City. So um, a lot of the stuff that was coming out there was a little saucy, too. So um, Sheffield definitely had a thing going on. Well, how about we play another track? Absolutely. We were talking a little Poison Arrow for our next selection. Let's do it. All right. We're going to side A, track two.
you know, we're talking about ABC and, and all of this drama. What better song to be featured on a, an episode of uh, The Young and the Restless in 1983 than Poison Arrow? I mean, they, they hit it and made it to soap opera land at that point. <laughs> this, this album is kind of a soap opera. <laughs> <laughs> that is some next level crossover, though. Seriously. And, and I'm, I'll take it to another level, too. So the video, the accompanying video of this, uh, of this song do you guys know who Lisa Vanderpump is? No. Negative. Not not like Lisa Suckdog. I, no. <laughs> I don't know what? who that is. That's a different direction. Uh, the vi- don't, don't look it up. Is, th- is that something also that's not family friendly on this episode I, tonight? I'm going to have to cut no, this all no, out. No, 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 no. She's a punk, she's a punk rocker. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. All right. <laughs> She's actually pretty fascinating, but frazzled. He frazzled Leora. <laughs> yeah, no, Lisa, Lisa Vanderpump. Well, I don't know. Truthfully, I don't know much about her either, but she's, she ended up appearing in, in a few different ABC-related uh, visuals, if you will. But she's, uh, she's somebody, I've never watched her show, but she has a reality show. I guess it's called uh, Vanderpump Rules. I have no idea if she was connected to like a Real Housewives something or other, but so don't don't at me on that because I don't know. But I do know there's a show, The Vanderpump Rules, and it stars Lisa Vanderpump, and she was the the damsel in the Poison Arrow video, but she was also the damsel in the accompanying. I, sh- I guess I shouldn't call it the accompanying film to the album, but this album was followed up with a film called Mantrap. Have you ever heard of Julian Temple? He's a director. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Can't place it. Yeah, so Julian Temple directed The Great Rock and Roll Swindle, and he also directed Absolute Beginners, in addition to, you know, various other 80s, like, music videos. And so Lisa Vanderpump stars as the damsel in this ridiculous film that is centered around ABC's live act. And it's a story, it's so crazy. I actually revisited this um, a few days ago 
And it's uploaded on YouTube from somebody's copy of their Laserdisc, which only adds to the charm of watching it. But it's pretty much a story about uh, Martin Fry getting in the middle of an espionage scheme as he's traveling across Europe on train with the band. And they're trying to switch Martin out as the lead singer with a Russian spy. And it has everything that you could ever imagine in it, all the schmaltz, all the drama, all the martinis and the villains and everything. And Lisa Vanderpump played Samantha in the film. And yeah, it's, it's, I don't want to spoil this for anybody, if anybody chooses to go and watch it. <laughs> but let's just say that there's no specific, uh, there are a lot of questions that remain at the end of the film. So that, I'm, I'm not going to spoil it, but there are many questions. But it was really Martin Fry's first foray into acting outside of, you know, participating in the videos that the band shot. And he did his own stunts, like he performed his own stunts in this film. <laughs> and and the concept behind it, so the reason why there was this, you know, Russian spy theme, you know, history repeating itself, really, but the Cold War was still on people's minds at the time of, um, you know, recording of the record and, and the subsequent release of the Julian Temple's film. And so... I guess the concept of it was to be a mixture of James Bond and Jerry Lewis at the same time. And I would definitely stand to agree that that's what they got out of it. And again, you know, Mantrap was one of those cases where ABC had to completely take it over the top. I guess they were approached by the BBC to make a film about four guys from Sheffield who made it big and made it good. And so the band was interested in participating and doing it. But again, they had to just take it next level and make it completely dramatic and make it completely over the top. So not only do you get the work, the album itself, Lexicon of Love, but you get this whole other accompanying film. So definitely, uh, if you're in the mood for uh, a little over the top drama, check it. All right, I, I looked this up. Lisa Vanderpump was initially in The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Ah, oh, thank you. I am not going to watch that. Same. <laughs> You're not going that that full of a deep dive. <laughs> I will I will recommend that you watch Man Trap. I will not I will not recommend that you watch that, but I will say that I think Martin Fry and Lisa Vanderpump are still like very fond of each other and and buds. They probably text each other. I wonder what those text threads are like. <laughs> Very dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> well, how about we move along to another song and then come back and talk about, we've talked a lot about Martin Fry. We can talk about some of the other players and people involved in making this record. Does that sound good to you, Liara? Sounds great. So we had talked about Tears Are Not Enough yes. being the next song, which is Side A, Track 4.
definitely one of my favorite songs on the album and also a really good example of the variety of texture and instrumentation that they use throughout a song like when you listen back to that you know there's the the little point where the piano comes in to kind of accent his vocal line there and then the guitar comes in and then you got horns here and there and it kind of gives variety and momentum and like a, a sense of storytelling if you will throughout the whole song yeah I was, uh, upon that listen, almost getting some Clash vibes. Yeah, totally. Not only Clash, I also get some Chic vibes. True. I regularly got Cure vibes, mostly from the vocals through this album. Yeah, I can hear that. Ah, yeah, that's really interesting. I, I actually didn't pick up on that, but I can totally hear that. Yeah. Well, that's just proof of how much is really going on in this record. There's a lot going on. Like Love Cats by The Cure. <laughs> I could hear a connection between what we just listened to and that. One of the things that I really love about this record is, is like every single time that I listen to it, I hear something new. You know, a little nuance here, a little tweak here, knob there. Uh, it never bores me. And I think, you know, that combined with all of the, the shifts in the lyrics and their tone. It's like you never get the same experience twice with it. Yeah, there's some strong professional musicians behind this record. And I think, you know, both in production and the players, I, th I think uh, we should give them a little time here. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, when you talk about the, the classic lineup that people talk about with ABC, it's typically... Martin Fry, and then um, Mark White was on guitar and keys. And I mentioned previously Stephen Singleton. He was the sax player and then drummer David Palmer. But really, ABC leading up to this iteration, kind of like a revolving door <laughs> of people. And honestly, it's, it, it's, it's a bit hard to keep up with who was in the band, where and when, um, with the exception of recent years. But, you know, also on this album, um, and I'll, I'll say it in air quotes, like guest musicians include somebody named Mark Lickey, who did a bass for the record. He played on Poison Arrow and Look of Love. And then also Ann Dudley. Um, and we talk about the orchestration on this record. So Ann Dudley um, 
is a very well known in the UK for her orchestrations, um, and she was a a, a big player here. Mm-hmm. And you know, kind of extrapolate on the family tree a little bit more of people involved in this record. You know, Anne Dudley went on to be a member of the Art of Noise, which is a, a, a you know a synth pop band after ABC, as did the album's engineer. Gary Lang- Langan, and then another synth programmer, J.J. Jexelik. So they all went along and, and um, ended up joining Art of Noise. And a lot of the production team ended up on working on this label, ZTT, which was also a product of Trevor Horn. Producer of this album. Correct. Yeah. Do you want to talk about Trevor Horn a little bit, Peter? Yeah, because if you don't know his name, you'll recognize some of the stuff he's done. Of course, he's best known for being one half of what, Liara? The Buggles. Video killed the radio star. And then when you hear that, it all kind of comes together. Like, you, you, you know, the pieces of the puzzle of this band all start to come together. He was also a member of Yes, their 80s Yes stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then uh, I'm guessing this would be where the Godly and Cream connection comes in as well. You guessed correctly, yes. So that record label, ZTT, was formed by the producer, Trevor Horn, uh, who you know went on to work in production for many, many years to come. And, and his NME-adjacent NME wife and Paul Morley, who both you know were connected with New, Music, New Musical Express over there, formed this label, and they ended up releasing a lot of... Um, a lot of great stuff into the 80s and beyond, but some of the more notable artists that who they worked with was, you know, Frankie Goes to Hollywood. They released Relax and Grace Jones. And as you might imagine, with Trevor Horn being half of the Buggles, and we know, what do we know about the Buggles' video? <laughs> it was the first video played on MTV. That's correct. So there's another puzzle piece, Label ZTT, was heavily focused on video production and album design and uh, people who were artists who were connected to this record include, you know, the visionary Anton Corbin, who I'm a fan of. Um, He did a lot of work with Depeche Mode. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, (laughs) the Godly and Cream, last but not least, I wanted to throw that in there since I know you're fans of them. So we had to put that connection in. Kashif gets it, Godly and Cream get it in this episode, too. Some of us are fans. Also, Lowell Cream was a member of the Art of Noise as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. There were just, there were so many connections. I went down so many rabbit holes with the production team on this. Trevor Horn, in the 90s, produced a little song called Kiss from a Rose by Seal. Whoa, not a little song. <laughs> yeah. That song stands huge in my brain. And Ann Dudley, <laughs> who did the arrangements on this, she orchestrated that song. Wow. She actually also, she has a co-writing, her and Trevor Horn both have co-writing credits on Buffalo Gals by Malcolm McLaren. So, so that also gives them like hip hop roots, <laughs> like, like originators. You know, it's it's wild, just yeah, and, and Anne Dudley also is a film composer. She did films like The Crying Game, American History X, and The Full Monty were a few that I knew. So it just, 
Yeah, it went on and on. Yeah, I mean, it pays to have a good, strong team behind you, right? During uh, just after the advent of MTV, too. So I'm sure that that uh, was something that didn't hurt ABC and some of their contemporaries, you know, didn't hurt some of their contemporaries coming out of Sheffield either. Like, you know, to pinpoint the Human League, Don't You Want Me Baby was, I would say, an MTV darling with that video and that single as well. I will never yeah. call a human league the darlings of MTV because they go much deeper than that. Um, that could be a whole other episode or two for me on here to ramble on about human league. But um, yeah, you know, ABC just kind of had right place, right time, right people. Going back to the lineup on this record, I got to say Mark Lickley is kind of the like secret star of this album because the three tracks he's playing bass on are poison arrow tears are not enough and the look of love which like all three of those had noticeably excellent bass lines so like he just came in and punched up the (laughs) three of the best songs on this record basically other than that is it synth bass that we're hearing i think on this album I, i believe i'd notice some synth bass otherwise that would make sense. On the Discogs page, it credits just Brad Lang as bass. It doesn't say specifically synth bass, but... Okay, maybe not. There's all kinds of stuff happening on this record. <laughs> Who knows what was happening? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Sean, I am curious what you chose to talk about for similar recommended albums. Yeah, there's obviously a lot of different directions we could go and a lot of stuff that's similar that's not in the dollar bin anymore. But the three I selected, the first one that we mentioned, Level 42, Run in the Family from 1987. I think there's a lot of similarities in the kind of sophista pop angle and uh, the approach to songwriting. Another one that we've covered before with like a little bit different direction, but if you think about it, a lot of similarities. Kid Creole and the Coconuts, Tropical Gangsters slash Wise Guy from 82. Mm-hmm. And last one, Howard Jones, his first record, Humans Lib from 1984. Another guy that's like known more for his later super popular kind of cheesy stuff, but his early records are really, really good and uh, have a lot going on. That one's like a little bit more on the synth side of things than this record is, but uh, another good dollar bin guy that you should dig into. Nailed it. Well, thank you very much, Sean. Thank you, listeners. You can always follow us on social media. Instagram, we're at I'd Buy That Podcast. And we're also on Facebook. If you go there and type in I'd Buy That for a dollar, we should show up. You can also join our Facebook group and post records that you've been listening to or you cheap scores that you found. Lyra, you're a member of our Facebook group, correct? I am. It's a happening place. Yeah. Join us. Join the party, listeners. Not on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, we're not on Twitter. <laughs> Definitely not. We made the right choice a few years ago. Yep. <laughs> well, Leora, do you have any final thoughts on this album or anything else you'd like to discuss before we tell them the last song we're going out on? Yeah, I just have a question for um, the three of you. Would you buy it for a dollar? I'll answer for us. Yes. Excellent. Sean, how much was the copy you acquired? I paid five American dollars for this record, and I'm happy with every penny of it. Looking forward to playing several of these songs in DJ sets in the future. Yeah, you you were, it sounded like you uh, 
were pleasantly surprised by this record. Yeah, you know, no one asked me at the beginning of the episode uh, what I thought about this record or my history with it, but uh, I guess I can just drop that right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> I first listened to this record like probably like eight years ago at the record store, and I remember being not terribly impressed. I didn't hate it, but I was just like, eh, not for me. But I've been curious to revisit, so I was excited for the opportunity when Leora picked this, and going back through... I, I don't know if it's, you know, some of my recent trends in listening, like the Yacht Rock and the Fusion Smooth Jazz and all that, but it uh, I liked it a whole lot more this time around. I thought it was way funkier than I remembered, and the, the over-the-top elements that were probably a turnoff before, I did not mind at all this time around. So I'm proud owner of this record, excited to spend more time with it in the future. I'm delighted to hear that. That makes me so happy. I'm really glad to hear you you consider incorporating more in your in your sets. If I had it my way, I'd be permanently suspended in time on the dance floor to this record, even the ballads. Which you wanted to go out on a ballad, right? Absolutely. Take take us out. All of my heart. All of my heart goes into loving this record. Oh. <laughs> and that is the name of the final song all of my heart that we're going to talk about or that we're going to feature. So that's side B track three, Liara, always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having me. A B C O T T L O L. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we, that is the perfect note to go out on. So this has been, I'd buy that for a dollar. My name is Peter cook. My name is JSR. I'm Sean Hartman. And I'm Liara Haas. upon a star if that might